The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are again. Episode 59. That's awesome. I have to tell you, Austin went home and shared his podcast with everybody he's ever known in his life. And it's the coolest thing because wow. he has such a win on the program and his mom and dad were just so wowed by, you know, they, 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 he didn't see him um, before the, they didn't see him uh, since he, you know, routed into the program. And so basically what they saw was the before product and the after product. They saw no in between product really. And um, I think actually, I think they visited him early in this program, but nevertheless, when they picked him up, they were like blown away by the changes he made. And so when he went home, not only did he make it known like, hey, I was an addict. This is what I struggled with. Anybody who needs help, call me and I'll get you linked up with Narcanon. But also he shared his podcast everywhere. And it was really, really cool. And like He got so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of validation by everyone yep. on Facebook. Yep. Like, just like, well done, man. Good for you. I mean, you took a guy that was addicted to IV meth yep. and got him clean. And meth is one of those drugs that a lot of rehabs used to consider you one of those throwaway clients. If you do meth, there's ninety-nine percent chance you're not going to get sober. Right. And so, well, there's there's there there's you a go. success right there. So, there and what a delightful young man! I I so enjoyed meeting him. Oh, yeah. You know, because of course when I was there at graduation, and I and I'm, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I wouldn't know Austin if he walked up to me because he we did it over Skype. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice meeting him. Yeah, he's a nice guy, very friendly. Now his daughter has her father back and his parents have their son back and it's just it's just a really cool thing to see you know as hard as my job gets sometimes as much as like i'll be like oh the stress and so much going on and that's the things that make it completely worth it is right. you see someone just completely change their lives um there's another girl who's on the program now and i don't know if i just noticed but she came about i don't know i say two and a half months ago and I sat down with her. We have a little snack time at 3.15. was like a break in between courses, uh-huh. in between course periods. And I sat down. I looked at her. I said, Anne-Marie, I, you don't look the same. <laughs> this woman has color in her skin. She lost 35 pounds because wow. alcohol had made her gain a ton of weight. Yeah. Uh, she, it was like a completely different person. I was like, you look completely different. She's like, I know. I feel completely different. She's halfway done with the program at this point. So she's taking her time to go through it. Right. And I just couldn't believe the physical transformation in this woman because it was, she's like unrecognizable. I was like, it was so cool. That's awesome. So I had a thought. Okay. <laughs> oh, that was great. But that's not what you wanted to talk about. Okay. So a, go. Of course, it's what I'm talking throw about. Throw it at me. I had a thought. So I was thinking about. I was thinking about the fact that addiction doesn't just affect an addict. It right. affects the whole family. It's like the whole family kind of goes on the ride into the, you know, on the train into the abyss when it comes to addiction. Right. Now, when it comes to, you know, a family looking at their child and their child became an addict, I wonder how many families out there take the responsibility for their kid becoming an addict. Like the question of like, okay, my kid's an addict. Did I fail as a parent? It's my fault. It's my fault. Right. Now, the thing about addicts is we will blame everybody. Right. Except ourselves. <laughs> right. You know, it's easy because it's easier. I mean, right. we can blame uh, dad, uh, you're an addict because dad was too strict and mom was too enabling and dad was mean to me at Disney World when I was seven or I got, you know. Parents got, got divorced. Parents got divorced yeah. or uh, they wouldn't let me, quote unquote, be myself. or And so I had to, you know, find, really find myself and I could really be myself when I'm smoking crack. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> 
realized that's terrible. Yeah. Okay. I, but, but, but seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's easier to blame everyone else for your condition because it's easier than you saying, you know what, I made a grave error and I need to fix it. Right. In the time that you're going through it, it's easy to put it off on mom and dad. And I was thinking about that. But I was thinking about the flip side of it. Now, I don't have kids, so I don't know what it's like to be a parent. I know what it's like to be the parent of two little fuzzy cats, but I don't know what it's like to be you know, the parent of a human being. Right. And um, I know what my parents went through, and I, I wondered how many families really try to take all that responsibility onto themselves for the fact that their kid chose to be an addict. Now, I know most families do the best they can. Right. They instill you know ethics and morals and teach the difference between right and wrong but i just kind of wanted to put this message out there this week it was was like kind of talking at my heartstrings a little bit i want all the parents out there to know that if your kid's an addict your child became an addict it's not because you did something wrong it was their choice unless you introduced them to the drug at which Which point then we'll talk about that but unless you did that and gave them their first joint or their first you know syringe full of heroin yeah you're right yeah right you know what that happens though it does happen but here's the thing and i think we talked about this before i i appreciate the message but the other thing is even if you are somehow responsible because you did like give them their first joint or whatever it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. get them help Mm -hmm. do you know don't get into the whole shame blame and regret of it that's not going to do anybody any good the blame game doesn't work because The reality, the reality is that the addict's going to have to take responsibility for their own condition in life before they can move forward and actually change. And I think I can imagine that if I was a parent and my kid became an addict, I would think that is a reflection on me as a parent mm-hmm. because you know when you're bringing up children, there's no book on how to do it. There's no like how to manual. You, there's nothing really. I mean, some parent most parents, I'd say, do the best that they can right. with their kids, and so I think. I think it's easy for parents to blame themselves, especially when the kid's blaming you too. Right. And so I just want most families to know out there that unless you introduce your kid to drugs, it's not your fault. You know, everything starts with a choice and life is full of choices. Yep. Every day we're faced with, what, 30 different choices throughout the day. I mean, a lot of them are minor, like what do I want to eat for breakfast or, you know, what kind of, what I want, what, how much cream do I want in my coffee? But throughout life, we're faced with pretty large, impactful choices. And most of us who became addicted I don't think a lot of us realized the huge impact that first choice was going to make on our lives. Right. But it was no way reflection on our parents' failure at raising us. Right. Exactly. So instead of getting into the blame game, which is super easy, if you're if you're sitting there, mom and dad, and you're feeling upset or you're feeling responsible and you know that your kid is struggling – the best thing you can do is it doesn't matter whose fault it is, really. Get them into treatment. Get them into treatment. Do something about it. Because whoever's right and whoever's wrong. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It really doesn't matter in the long run. It doesn't matter. Because you don't want to have that conversation with yourself when it's too late. That's right. Because if you don't act now, when? Yeah. If not now, when? I always say that. You know, so many people, I, I think I've talked to more families that had considerations on getting their loved one in the treatment than the actual loved one had um, about going to treatment themselves. Right. <laughs> and so it, right now, drugs are such a scary, scary thing because of everything that's mixed in. You never know when it's going to be too late. And if you think that overdoses are just, you know, confined to using opiates, you're wrong because there's been a huge surge in cocaine-related overdose deaths because they're mixing fentanyl in with cocaine now because they're both white powders. And so it uh, it's it's pretty concealed yep. pretty easily. And, and so you have to be careful out there today. Yep. Uh, 
And I was just watching a video, I just happened to catch it about some, you know, it's a people we've lost too early because, yes. you know, because they died like actors and such. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple who died of prescription overdoses. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's not just, it doesn't just happen with illegal drugs and street drugs. It can happen with prescription drugs. Well, remember, most of the drugs that are out there right now that are killing people are completely legal. Yeah. The, yep. I think the legal versus illegal arguments, like, it's an old argument and it started with uh, with marijuana. Yep. But I think in reality, we have to stop looking at, oh, if it's, if it's, if it's legal, it must be okay. And if it's illegal, it must be really, 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 really bad. But it's not even the case because right now the FDA, I don't necessarily know how much of our best interest they're looking out for. Because, I mean, they approved Oxycontin. They yeah. approved all sorts of stuff. I don't and, even go. Let's <laughs> not even talk about the FDA. We're going to take on the government. What they approve and what they don't approve. You know, um, it's interesting what when you when you brought up the idea of choice and the interview that I did right. with um, Nick Heather, who is started a group called the Addiction Theory Network, right. and he's a psychologist in England. And you know, it's we actually he actually talked about that, you know, because he's very much against the whole brain disease, you know, viewpoint sure. of addiction, um, kind of along the lines. This is the group that David Aiden told us about, right. and that I reached out and found Nick, and so I interviewed him. But we actually talk about that in terms of, you know, the the choice. It it starts with a choice that the addict makes. You know, yeah. um, do you want to do that interview? Are you yeah, ready? Yes, yeah, it's queued up. Okay. We talk a lot on the podcast about how addiction is not a disease. In fact, it is just poor choices made by an individual that ultimately can result in addiction to some form of drug or alcohol. And what we spoke to David Aiden last week, and David um, does a lot of research into this area and reported on us how there are, uh, there's a whole faction within this country that is really not only pushing the idea that addiction is some sort of a brain disease, but also that the only legitimate treatment is medication assisted treatment. And we are so against that because if you, first of all, if you address it as a disease, the person has no uh, choice in the matter and they become effect rather than cause over the um, affliction. And secondly, I guess I shouldn't call it an affliction, cause over the problem, let's say. And secondly, when you substitute one drug for another, you are not in fact getting someone drug free, which is what we want. But I'm not an expert. Jason, I feel, is an expert because he has experience in the area. David is an expert because he spent a lot of time researching it. But today we are actually interviewing someone that I think we could say is an expert and has credentials. His name is Nick Heather, and he is Emeritus Professor of Alcohol and Other Drug Studies in the Department of Psychology, Faculty of Health and Life Sciences at Northumbria University in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK. He has over 30 years experience and qualification in the area of addiction. He has published over 500 scientific articles, books, chapters in books, and other publications, mostly in the area of addictions and with an emphasis on the treatment of alcohol problems. 
He is co-founder and honorary president of the New Directions and the Study of Alcohol Group and co-founder of the International Network on Brief Interventions for Alcohol and Drugs. In 2017, he was the winner of the Jelinek Memorial Award for Outstanding Research and Conceptual Contributions on the Interaction of Individual and Psychosocial Factors in Alcoholism. So without further ado, let's talk to Nick Heather. So Nick, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Not at all. Great pleasure. I'm actually really excited to have you on the podcast because I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of our episodes, but Jason Good, who is a former addict and works for a residential rehab, we have said probably a thousand times now over our year of podcasting that the whole addiction as a disease model is is just, it's really not valid and it's not helpful um, to addicts or to the addressing of the whole addiction pro- problem. But Jason's credentials are that he's a former addict and I have no credentials whatsoever except that I have seen people become drug-free with a methodology that doesn't call it a disease. So to have you on the podcast, because you actually have credentials, you're an expert in the area. Oh, dear. <laughs> so I'm happy, I'm happy to have you with us today. Right. Well, I've taken an interest in my, in my uh, professional and clinical career. I'm a clinical psychologist. So I've done a bit of treatment of people with uh, addictive disorders, but uh, mainly I'm an academic and researcher. The other thing is, it's relevant to note that I am a former addict too. You are to, nic- to nicotine. Oh, okay. Which is which is highly relevant because yes. we all know that it's a very that is a very addictive uh, addictive drug, and people as I did spend a, a a long time trying to quit, trying to change their behaviour without success with frequent relapses and so on. So it obviously doesn't have the kind of destructive social economic consequences that addiction to other, to other drugs, to other more mind-altering drugs like uh, opiates or alcohol. But it, but it is a perfect example of the problems that, uh, that addicts face in, try, in trying to change their behavior. Agreed. So I know that you are not in favor of the addiction is a disease model, if you will. Give me, give me your best argument as to why. Right. Well, there's a whole bunch of arguments. For me, the, the thing that stands out most clearly is that, that addictive behavior, I would say when um, a heroin addict takes another shot or um, a, cig- a nicotine addict uh, lights up another cigarette, etc. That is intentional behavior. Um, I mean, it seems to me that's that's quite self-evident. You know, it's it's something that we do w- that we we have a goal and we behave in order to reach that goal. Um, it, it, it it's not uh, reflexive, automatic, or non-volitional behavior. And apart apart from the fact that, as I say, it's self-evident, there's also a huge amount of research dating right back to the 1960s um, to show that you can change 
uh, addictive behavior by various, uh, by offering various reinforcements, by changing the reinforcement contingencies in the jargon of psychologists. Um, I mean, one recent experiment you may have heard of was uh, was done by Carl Hart and his colleagues in in New York with, um, with with people found in the community with quite you know severe levels of, of cocaine addiction, and he found that he could buy abstinence from them temporarily, albeit just by offering alternative alternative rewards. Anyway, that's, that's just one demonstration, but there's, there's a, as I say, a huge amount of evidence to say what, to confirm what seems obvious, that it's voluntary behavior. Now, that changes the whole picture to me. I think disease is about things that happen to us, right. it, aren't they? Right. You, it, it doesn't make sense to think in disease terms about behavior which we voluntarily engage in. Now, before... Before I start getting accused of, of, of thinking that uh, addiction is, is a myth, and, uh, you know, people are simply choosing to behave in the way they want to, that's not the case. I, I do see that there's a, a mystery about addiction and there's something which needs to be explained. Now, I want to retain the concept of addiction, if, if only because addicts, are people who keep making choices at one time to quit or to cut down or to change their behavior, but then fail to do so. So addiction is a process about not being able to keep to your prior intentions, your prior resolutions to change. Right. In other words, you're, you're fixed it, you're stuck on a certain way of behaving, which you can't change. So that's my view of addiction. But it, it, it as I say, it's at the time it's carried out, it's voluntary behavior, and that can't be a disease. That's correct. And and one of the things that Jason typically tells an addict when they come to Narconon is you don't have a disease, you can get better, you have made bad choices. And then, of course, Narconon has a whole technology and methodology for helping the person then you know, get the drugs out of their body, get the drugs out of their system, and also to yeah. look at what were the problems in their life for which drugs became a solution. So definitely yeah. have some agreement there. Well, some agreement, but also a little disagreement. I mean, I think it's something more than just making bad choices. Well, initially, it's a bad choice, because initially, what? they have to decide to smoke the first cigarette, smoke the yeah. first joint, you know, snort the first cocaine or, you know, shoot up the first heroin, but it's not a disease that they were born with. It starts no. with some sort of a choice. And granted, once they're addicted, that they cannot simply make the choice to stop because, and I think that's frustrating for a lot of people who've never experienced well, it, addiction. It's extremely difficult for right. to do so. Yeah. Yeah. There are those who can. Yeah, there are those who can, but very, very few, I think, can do it without. Depending on the severity of addiction. Exactly, exactly. That's that's the main reason you asked me for the main reason. That's that's one of them. Exactly, and why do you think there's such a push on it now to say that it's a disease? Why do you think that's going on? I I mean, I, I don't know if in the 1900s. Or the 1800s, that when people were using laudanum, well, I shouldn't, that's a bad example, because I guess that was used for various physical maladies. But why do you think there's such a push now to call it a disease? 
Well, going back to what you just said, I mean, the disease concept is uh, about 200 years old. In, in, in a, even, you know, even before that, some people would argue, but in, in a formal, when people first started using the word disease to imply to apply initially to alcohol, to self-destructive al alcohol consumption, Benjamin Rush, you know, the American uh, father of psychiatry was one of the people to do so. Uh, so, you know, it's 200 years old. So when proponents of the brain disease model uh, seem to suggest it's something they've just thought of, yeah. the, the, the brain uh, disease idea is new. Uh, the, brain disease, the brain disease model is just the kind of latest version in a successive in a series of different ways of looking at, looking at um, looking at the behavior as a disease. I think the key thing about them all is that they regard the behavior as compulsive, that, that people don't have a choice, that choice has been completely taken away from them. And as I, you know, I think part of what I was saying earlier to response to your first question is that the evidence completely contradicts that. Right. That's, that's not the case. Now, what, right, I haven't answered your question, have I? Why is it so popular? Well, uh, there's an enormous investment in in neuroscience, in the neuroscience of addiction, particularly through your own splendid uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, and uh, as I'm sure you know, 20 years ago, the, the director of NIDA, um, I called Alan Leshner, who's a psychologist, strangely enough, anyway, he uh, wrote this paper in the journal Science, which you know, it can be regarded as kind of manifesto of the brain disease and addiction movement. And there's been an enormous financial um, incentive to, to produce the goods over that period. And, and neither, you know, funds an enormous proportion of the research on addiction th throughout the world, because you're the richest country in the world. And you know, um, uh, you, you dominate uh, uh, scientific research, and so so that's why it's so completely uh, completely dominant. And the other factor, I guess, in the U.S. is the opioid crisis that you're you're having, which is as uh, demanded an attempt to try to explain what's going on and try to come up with solutions. Yes. So um, I think we can agree, we too can agree, I'm sure that the brain disease model hasn't really offered many solutions to that. No, it's not working. The epidemic uh, is get, continuing to escalate and get worse. So obviously... To escalate, the, really? Is it? Really? I think so. And, yeah. and not just opioids either. Um, Jason oh. and I have mentioned this many times. You know, there's all this attention on opioid, opioid, opioid. There yeah. is alcohol, alcohol marijuana yeah. as it becomes yeah. legalized, and also amphetamines, meth, yeah. crystal meth. Um, there, none of them are going away, and none of them, yeah, yeah, none of them are going away. That's the bottom line. Yeah, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the points that you sent to me, and I love the way you said it, is the mm. unholy <laughs> collaboration between yes, medicine right. and the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Now, we could probably spend, oh, probably hours and hours talking about that. But that just, that, <laughs> talk about that for me. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, that, that's something I should have added, you know, when I, just now when I was answering your, your question about why is it such a, um, why is the brain disease model so heavily pushed and so uh, popular? 
Um, one, of the, one of the reasons for that is, is the power and strength of the pharmaceutical industry, obviously, and um, their need to sell their products. We all know about the, the role of um, uh, what purging pharmaceuticals in the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. But I think you can multiply that to make a more general statement about big pharma. And it's about its vested interests in telling people that this is a brain disease and the only solution to it is to buy more of these products which we have uh, developed. So, I mean, that that is an enormous kind of ideological um, um, bias in discussions, in, in public forums, discussions of, of uh, addiction, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. Exactly. Now, I'm, I'm not somebody, actually, I'm not somebody who rejects all use of, of pharmaceuticals. I, th I think they have some use on a temporary, limited, and very kind of practical way you know, to help people whose lives are in, in, in absolute chaos uh, to to give them some kind of a little bit of stability, enough stability and order in their lives in order to make decisions and move on and seek treatment. So I think it has a role there. Well, and it, it certainly doesn't have a role as a lifelong solution to a metabolic disease or a disease of the brain, which you will never recover from. And you must keep taking these medications to keep obeying. Exactly. And, you know, just along that line, slightly different from what you're saying, I mean, Oxycontin was yeah. developed for people who needed end of life palliative care. And so yeah. for that purpose, hey, that's, that's fine. That's what it's, that's what it's no, used but I mean, for. I mean, it might some no, but I know what you mean. Not Oxycontin particularly, but no. some, some drugs might have a limited role in the treatment of addiction. I don't deny that. Understood. The other, the other thing, I mean, to get more rather pompous and pretentious about this issue for, for a moment is that I, you know, I have a kind of dystopia, a view of a dystopian future when all what you can what call problems in living that we all have. I mean, life is a difficult business. It's mm -hmm. a joyful, wonderful business at some times, but it's it's difficult. Everybody experiences these difficulties mm -hmm. in numerous kind of ways. And there's, I think, there's a tendency to offer kind of chemical solutions, um, like depression, a minor reactive depression. You know, a tendency to straight away give people. Um, antidepressant drugs uh, as an immediate response to that. And we'd, you, I'm not the only one, obviously, to worry about the medicalization of everyday life. Right. I, th I think that's happening all over the Western world. And I, I think the, the brain disease model feeds into that as well. Yep. I, I don't want my kids to grow up in, in a world in which any kind of problems are that, including problems with addiction. Right. It, it, the only available response to them is to go down to their local medical practitioner and and get other other chemicals shoved down their throats. I really don't want that to happen. I don't. I don't think the human race is quite that stupid. Actually, I mean, one source of optimism I I have is that I think people eventually will see through that mm -hmm. and will see it as a as a shallow and ineffective attempt to to deal with them as I say, the problems that we all experience. But, you know, maybe I'm a natural optimist. I can't be sure. But I've just got a feeling that it won't succeed in the end.
No, I think you're absolutely right. And um, you are echoing, again, some of the things that Jason and I talk about. Life has its ups and downs. And when you have the viewpoint that the way to handle those ups and downs is to just take a pill, then you're not really confronting life and you're not taking advantage. You're avoiding it. You're avoiding it. And you're not taking advantage of the, you know, the the goodness that's there in your life and how you can tap into that. And one of the people also, I'm just going to throw this in there as kind of a side note, one of the people that we interviewed on the podcast is a pharmacist, and she actually treats a lot of, you know, these types of things like mild depression or pain yeah. and such with pharmaceutical grade vitamins and minerals, which of course, the pharmaceutical companies will never make money on. So that's why that's not usually pushed as a solution. Ah, interesting. Yeah. There Good. You, yes. Are the I'm curious now, kind of getting over to uh, the UK. Do you have a lot of drug commercials on the television in the UK like we do here? Oh no, no, no. They're they're um, illegal. No, they're not. They're not permitted. Okay. In- straight. What, what do you call? What, what is the phrase? It's straight to the consumer um, advertisements for for for, um, for drugs. No, no, no. No, wow. we don't have those. I think we need, to, we need to get rid of them in this country because um, pretty much every time you watch any sort of television in this country, you yeah. will see, you know, oh, you need. And, and the, the thing that amazes me is that the same drug that was being advertised for depression two years ago is now being yeah. advertised for rheumatoid pain, rheumatoid arthritis pain or mm. eczema, the, the very yeah. same drug. And you go, wait a second, is it for depression or is it for eczema or is it for depression or is it for pain relief? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a gray area. And that's something I, I don't know, I, I must've been sleeping when those, when those laws got passed, because otherwise I might've said more about (laughs) it. All of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, because you can't even advertise cigarettes, but you can advertise alcohol and drugs on our television. Well, I've I've been to your country many times and I'm shocked (laughs) every time I see one of those, those advertisements. Yep. Yep. And of course, then they, they rattle through the uh, possible side effects and downside in, at, you know, 80 miles an hour. And mm. so maybe you didn't catch the fact that you could cause suicidal tendencies and you just mm. have to go by yeah. that. So what are you looking at now? What's the what's what's going forward? Are you going to be concentrating on? Right. Well, I'm you know, I'm towards the end of my career. I'm considerably uh, old. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, plying away because I can't think of anything better to do. A couple of years ago, a, a colleague of mine, a guy called Derek Heim um, at Edgehill University, he um, he noticed uh, uh, an editorial in, in the, the journal Nature, which is really a big deal. I mean, Nature is about the most prestigious scientific journal on earth. Um, and this said that uh, it was in relation to some some uh, about animal protesters in, in Italy, as it happened, people had been protesting about addiction research using um, rats or other animals. Uh, that was ostensibly the topic of the article. But in the middle of it, it says it said that all, there was a almost unanimous consensus in the scientific community that addiction was a chronic relapsing brain disease. So um, Derek uh, emailed me and said, have you seen this? You know, do you want to do, try and do something about it? It was mainly his idea. And he wrote a letter to Nature 
and he sent it round in our various networks. And altogether, we got, I think, 94 people from around the world, including your country, of course, very distinguished people, by the way, people who spent a lifetime, um, some of them uh, in, involved in studying addiction and writing about it and researching about it, to sign this letter protesting to nature about this. Now, from those origins, um, we, Derek and I, started up a group called the Addiction Theory Network, <laughs> the aim of which is to collaborate on finding uh, criticisms, uh, on elaborating criticisms of the, of the brain disease model of addiction, and also to try and, try and find alternatives. I mean, it's not completely negative. If it's not a brain disease, then what is it? There's a whole range of possibilities there. So that's what I'm chiefly involved in. And I think I think you, you I may have come to your notice through that organization. I'm not sure. But, you, you did. We interviewed yeah. um, David Aiden, who is yes. with the Center for the Study of Drug Addiction Policy. And yes. he actually mentioned the Drug Addiction Theory Network or Addiction Theory Network. And yeah. So I googled you guys, and I found you on Twitter, and then I found I don't I don't know exactly what website, but you were the only one that had the little email picture, and so I said, oh, I'll email him because um, definitely, you know, we would like to help in any way we can to get across the yeah. message that addiction is not a disease. We have right. over seventeen thousand downloads now around the world, so we are we're building an audience, and so if we can help. Okay help you get that message across, that's definitely something that we're interested well, in doing. Form a link. I mean, what one, the first thing is that you as an individual and your, David, your colleague can individually join the Addiction Theory Network just by you know, going to Google Groups and make, making an application. It will come to me and I will go approved and you will be a member of the network. There's no fees or nothing, you know, there's no... Um, no obligations. Okay, so yeah. I want to say that again. So if you go to Google Groups and you find yeah. the Addiction Theory Network, then go to Google Groups search for Addiction Theory search Network. Search for Addiction Theory Network, and then and then you can join. And I'm I'm repeating yeah. that because um, you you can apply to join. You can apply to join because there may be people who listen to this podcast that would be of interest in. Yeah, joining sure. joining your group as well. Nick, thank well, you. Welcome. Thank you so much for spending the time talking to us today. I, I really appreciate it. It's like I say, I'm very passionate about this subject, but I have no credentials. My children, fortunately, are drug free. I had no um, real drug issues in my family, but I'm a mother and a grandmother. And when I you know, hear about the drug addiction problem and the young people who are suffering and ultimately sometimes dying from addiction. I can't, I can't, I can't not do something about it. So I'm passionate about it, but I have no credentials. So it was really nice to have you on because you have the credentials. And I, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Not at all. I enjoyed it and keep up the good work. Thank you. I will definitely, definitely do that. So there were two things that um, Nick wanted me to make sure I pointed out that he didn't feel ha were actually pointed out enough from the, the conversation. And I told him I would do that. And one is that just because we say that addiction is not a disease, mm. it does not in any way lessen the seriousness or the severity of the right. addiction problem that we have in the country. And I, I think, 
you know, we understand that. And mm-hmm. we, we know that it's definitely a serious disease. And the other thing was he wanted to make certain that when we say it's not a disease, that we don't move then into the punishment of addicts. Mm-hmm. And I think we've also talked about that in different ways. But I told him I would punch up those two points because he wanted to make sure that we really got got those two points across. And, you know, we've said many times that, you know, when a parent or a loved one looks at their at their loved one who's an addict and go, oh, well, why doesn't he or she just stop? Well, you can't. It's, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. And um, I'm glad we all agree on this point of it not necessarily being a... Uh, not necessarily being a disease. And the fact of the matter is, and like you, like I've always said and you agree with, it all starts with a conscious decision to try something knowing it's a calculated risk that you're taking. And it is calculated because there's a shot you're either going to put it down and never touch it again or you're going to become addicted. Right. But you just don't know. So that's where it's a risk. Right. And it's a, it's a risk people literally take every single day, every minute, every hour. People are taking that risk. So I think everyone needs to think long and hard if, you know, if you're young and your friends are experimenting and you're thinking about doing the same thing, just know what you could possibly get yourself into. Right. But I'm glad, I'm glad we did this interview with Nick um, because there is a push in this country, as David said, to label addiction as a brain disease and therefore make the only valid treatment, medicine. medication or medicine-assisted treatment. And it, it, it's not true. Um, you know, as David said, there are, are the people who are pushing this think that someone who is now addicted to methadone or Suboxone is in fact sober, which is the most insane, false piece of information I have ever, ever heard. And for any of you who decide to take an exception, well, we're just going to say it once again, we want you to be drug-free. We know you can be drug-free. We know you can live without Suboxone, without methadone. Mm-hmm. It, you can do it. And that's what we want. And that's what we're going to keep pushing. And that's what the Narconon program produces. Right. And if you're struggling out there, know there is life after methadone. There is life after Suboxone. You might not think there is, but there is. And uh, it's all about how you get off it. And the fact of the matter is making that decision. It's making that choice. Just like a choice got you into addiction, a choice can also lead you out of addiction. Exactly. So go in, go in and out the same way. All comes down to a choice. It's all up to you. And you need to make the right choice for your own survival, for your own lives, and uh, hopefully find happiness at the end of the second choice rather than what came after the first choice. That's right. Well, thanks for coming over. Yes. Once again, thanks for another week. And uh, we will do this again next week because that's what we do. We'll talk to you then. Okay. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 